All right, beloved, if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you uh, don't have a Bible that you have to use this morning and you need one, please raise your hand and our guys will get one to you so that you can follow along with what we are learning for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Who am I kidding? For the next hour, you will hear uh, nothing but boasting in Christ. What we do in the pulpit here at First Family Church is exalt the Son of God, for it is it is he who has made it possible for us to be sons and daughters of the king. And so he deserves all the credit and the glory. We're going to particularly exalt the son uh, because of the work that he did on the cross, which we celebrate in the taking of the Lord's table. And it just so happens that God lined up things so that I would still be teaching about the Lord's Supper as we uh, got to the first Sunday of the month, and we will be practicing that today. So a lot of uh, meaning that's going to be able to be put into action uh, right away. I do want to encourage you before we get into the sermon directly that uh, if you have not yet tried coming to Sunday school, we've got an excellent Sunday school class. And Ivan Stewart is doing a fantastic job in leading us through the book of Ephesians right now. And the discussions that we have in there, uh, they're not just for the moment. I think about those discussions throughout the whole week as we talk about how the Lord is uh, growing us up as his body, how we can marvel in the wonder of the generosity he's poured out onto us through grace, and then how we can live that out in such a way that the church is blessing each other. The, the, the body of Christ is, is being a consistent witness of God's truth in the community and is uh, helping one another to grow. So if you've not yet come to that, I would really encourage you. We have room for more people in there at 9 o'clock, and uh, it's a great time of fellowship and discussion. Uh, you can ask questions. You can grow stronger in your understanding of the word, so I really encourage you to come to that if you haven't tried that out. And if Sunday morning doesn't work for you, then think about the, the different small groups we have through the week as a means of getting more involved and, and growing deeper in your fellowship and your love for the word of God and your fellowship with the saints. All right, so last week we set our sights on 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, and I knew going into it that I was biting off way more than we could chew in a single Sunday. So today we're going to approach the exact same text. We're going to look at verses 17 through 34 again but we're going to do so from a different perspective. Our first look at these verses and, and the primary thrust of the text, I believe, revealed that the Lord's Supper is given to the people of God as a means of building unity. And that unity really has two dimensions to it. It is, it is a, a robust unity. God wants us to have a unity with the Son. And the table celebrates that. When we come and we take these elements, the bread and the wine, these two things represent the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so by taking these elements, it forces our minds to think about what they stand for. And what they stand for is the uniqueness, the holiness of Jesus. And so by partaking of these elements, we're remembering that the worst part of us, our sin nature, died on the cross at Calvary if we are believers. That if we call ourselves Christians and put our faith and hope in the Son of God, then he took our sin to the cross and suffered in our place. And so we have this wonderful unity that we experience when we think about the Lord's table, unity between us and the Son. But we also have a different dimension of unity that is celebrated in the table. And we spent a lot of time on that last week talking about how the Lord's table celebrates that Christians enjoy unity with one another as the body of Christ. That we are, because of our common faith, a single family under one Father a family that can gather around one table and enjoy closeness to one another because of the Father that cares for us and corrects us, for the Father that, that trains us up in righteousness, and for this Father that provides 
all of our needs. So last week we looked at 17 through 34 and we really discussed the wonderful unity that we have and are celebrating those verses. But there is more to the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to return to last week's passage and we're going to recognize that while God is, God's table is a unifying experience for all those who are in Christ, it is not a table at which every human being will sit. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be, begin with verse 17, and we're going to read all the way through 34, and then we're going to take some time uh, to work through this passage in some detail. So starting with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup in the new covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So he shared a lot with us there. Apparently there are more things that he didn't share with those Corinthians, but I trust that these uh, few verses that we're going to be looking at today are enough for us to meditate and ponder. So let's take a moment and ask the Lord to guide us through this process. Mighty God, I pray that you would give us the clear picture of what your scripture is trying to communicate to us today, Father. It is by your word that we know even how we should worship you. It is by your word that we know what is pleasing to you, Lord God. And it is by your word that we know that our actions and our thoughts are not always pleasing to you. And so we thank you, Lord God, that we are in a relationship of love and forgiveness with you. We pray, God, that as we approach this text and as you help us to understand the grace of your, your gospel, that you would help us to rejoice in the table specifically because of the fact that it indicates we're not what we used to be. And Father God, we know that the table, the Lord's Supper, is not for everyone in the world, but we pray that, God, each day your mighty mission would resound in the world, that more and more people would be able to come into this precious and sweet fellowship with you. And so, Lord, help us, not only as a church corporately, but individually, 
to see the gospel as a message that we must take into this world and that we need to deliver to our friends and our neighbors, to complete strangers, even to our enemies, Lord God. And so, Father, I pray that you would spark into our hearts a desire to reach out to others who do not yet experience the joy that we get to have when we come and we feast with you. We pray this, Lord God, thoughtfully in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. The first thing of note here, uh, when you come together, says Paul, uh, this is in the Greek the word sunerkomai. Paul's using a, a conjugation of this verb five different times in the verses that I read today, so it's a dominating theme throughout these verses. Togetherness, when you come together as a people, togetherness is an essential element of the Lord's Supper. Administering the Lord's Supper, therefore, to yourself privately is, is missing the point. That's why when we went into the, the COVID restrictions last year, people asked, are we going to do, do communion at home? We, we didn't do communion at home because really the scripture tells us that this is something that we do together as a family. For the same reason, I, I advise people when they get married, sometimes people say, can we do communion together for the first time in a wedding? I say, why don't you wait and do t- communion together for the first time with your church? Because it's not just a personal thing. It is something that, that identifies us with the church of God. So there's great togetherness with this, with this sacrament. When, to, when you come together, Paul says, specifically as the church. And the term church there in the Greek is ekklesia, which many of you are familiar with. It, it's translated church here. The word can be generally and generically used in the Greek language to describe any kind of assembly. But by the time that this letter is written to the Corinthians, this term was already being used in a much more specific and narrow way to describe the church of God, particularly the gathering of saints on the Lord's Day when they came to worship as they had been commanded by their Savior. So Paul's intel, he's heard some things from people in the church that he knows. It is revealed that there are divisions there among the Corinthians. We've known that ever since the first chapter when Paul began to address some of the outpouring of that divisiveness. All is not well in this church. And so in verse 19, Paul surprises us just a little bit. He surprises us with a piece of information that seems almost contrary to the rest of what he has to say about the Lord's Supper in this section. Though he goes on to emphasize how important the table is to togetherness, to the unity of the church, and is going to point out that their selfish habits were jeopardizing that unity as the rich and the wealthy were having feasts but neglecting those who were poor, uh, that there were people who were overindulging while others had nothing or were being overlooked. That was hurting the church. So he speaks at length to that unity that was in danger. But Paul prophetically also knows that these divisions are necessary among them. He tells them that they are real, but they're also necessary. You can't get a, away from them entirely. So, so why are these divisions, as, as verse 19 tells us, why are they necessary? If God desires such unity for us, why are these divisions something we can't totally avoid? In, they are necessary in order that those who are genuine among the, the people of God may be recognized. That's how Paul explains it. He wants those Corinthians to understand that the, the divisions and the cracks in the people will be used for a great good eventually by God. As, as the scripture brings out the truth of who those individuals are in those different factions and reveals that some may not actually have a sincere heart for the Lord. The word for genuine here is dukemoi, and it refers to those who have been tested. 
and have been found legitimate. So it's a, a word that revolves around evidence and proof. Paul's speaking to those whose faith in Christ bears the evidence of real regeneration. These are Christians who've been transformed by the Lord. They are not going through some phase in their lives. They're not identifying with Christ only so long as it is convenient for them or benefits their life in some practical way. It's those who have come to have such a great love for Christ that it is transforming them. Now, if you look at this section as a whole, Paul does reveal his evaluation of the Corinthians here. And in that evaluation, he shows us that he's confident that many of the Corinthians do have legitimate faith. He's, he's not addressing them as he did, for instance, with the Galatians, where in the Galatian church, there was such a potential for them to slide in, a, in the wrong direction doctrinally that he wasn't entirely sure that there was a strong contingent of real believers there. He even reveals that in the Galatian letter. But here in the Corinthian letter, he's showing us, especially in the part where he speaks about the sufferings that they've been going through, he reveals that he indeed believes that most of them are saved, or a good portion of them are saved. Verses 27 through 32 shows us what can happen when someone takes the supper in an unworthy manner, right? Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so there's a sobering reality here. And, and, you know, think about this carefully because every church across the United States, every church across the world, is going to have people who are sick in it, right? Every church in existence is going to have people who are dying. That's the state of humanity. But Paul is pointing out to them because of God's revelation in his life that he knew that they were getting sick and dying for a specific reason because of the way they mishandled the Lord's table. It is so precious to God that he was bringing a discipline upon that congregation that resulted in sickness and even death. So friends, let's take a second just real briefly to think about the ramifications of that. We don't serve a dead God. We don't serve a God who has put his power on pause and will one day express his power again when he returns for the church. But right now we're just kind of on our own. That's not the kind of God we've come to worship today. We've come to worship a God who is active among his people, a God who is doing amazing and powerful things among his people. And sometimes that expression of God's power will be in discipline to those who are actually his. And that's what the Corinthians were experiencing there. It says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here Paul does not deal with the Corinthians as illegitimate believers, but as members of the family of God, as brothers and sisters who have a seat at the table and are rightfully disciplined by our common father when they disobey the commands of their God and they need correction. That is how Paul views that Corinthian congregation. When those who have repented of their sins and entered the family of God by faith are judged by the Lord. They're not judged into condemnation. They are disciplined. Not put out of the family, not disowned. Our Father doesn't wash His hands of us when we who are true Christians fall into sin and struggle for a time, but instead He allows the Word and the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives to grieve our hearts, to let us not be comfortable in our sin, to turn us back to what is good. He urges us to repentance. And our brothers and sisters in the church are used of God in such a way to help us to grow stronger 
and to not dwell in the sins that so easily ensnare us. So they are disciplined for the express purpose that they will not be condemned along with the world. Having been corrected by the Father, these imperfect men, these imperfect women will learn from their mistakes and they will faithfully make the corrections they need to make. Paul's confident of that. Their repentance and obedience to God's leading will act as tangible proof that they have been given that new heart and that the Spirit of God does indeed reside with them. Their, their confession is not empty or tinny. So the writer of Hebrews talks about this family dynamic. Another letter that is so important to the New Testament church, we don't know if it was written by Paul or somebody else, but in Hebrews chapter 12, listen to what the author says about the way God interacts with his children as their father who has authority in their lives. He says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Rest on that for just a second. That means that if you truly belong to the Lord, He will not let you continue and linger on in sin forever. But because He is a good Father, He will address what you're doing in your life that is contrary to His Word. He must love you to the truth. He will not just stand back and say, well, if you want to burn your life to the ground, go ahead. Christ will confront your sin. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, meaning our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, meaning God the Father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This, this kind of mindset is what Paul is thinking about as he's dealing with these Corinthians and says that the factions that exist among them are necessary because they will prove who is genuine among them. He is disciplining his children whom he loves so that they'll take this very important sacrament and they will treat it with seriousness and gravity and act once again like those who are truly adopted into the family of God. Paul is hopeful that they will repent. But Paul's acknowledgement that divisions are not only avoidable but necessary in the church bring to light a second, a second function of the supper that we're going to examine today. The supper helps us to understand the importance of unity between us and God, unity between us and our fellow believer, but the supper also shines light on distinction. It shines light on the distinction between those who are in the family of God and those who are not yet in the family of God. Not all who are among the people who gather together on Sunday mornings and who are counted in church registers, not all who are among the church are genuinely trusting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's a reality we all have to contend with as churches. Let me give you some examples of, of ways that that plays out. As we grow our families, praise God for that. God is growing our families. He is bringing new little ones to us and we're always so very thankful but when we grow our families, we don't reproduce Christians by birthright. We're not just automatically giving birth 
to sons and daughters of Jesus. Our kids will grow up in the realm of the church, but will not properly be a part of the family of God until they see the weight of their sin and they repent of it and they enter into the family of God by faith. The Apostle Paul has already described to us how an unbelieving spouse and an unbelieving child are in some ways sanctified by the faith of the believing mother and father. We saw that in chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. That's more so for the benefit of that believing mother or father than it is for the unbelieving one that is considered temporarily sanctified. But that doesn't mean that they don't need Jesus on their own. Nobody is saved by proxy. Remember we talked about that a couple of, minutes, or a couple of weeks ago. Because of, of, of this, the children that we bring up in the Lord need to hear that gospel regularly. We need to approach them as a mission field. Our kids need to understand the truth of the scripture. We can't just assume that because they're growing up in a household of faith that they will be a people of faith. So we will always have these little ones with us, at least, who are not yet saved until they make a profession. Secondly, because of our commitment to evangelism as a church, we pray to always have people coming into our congregation, dwelling with us to some degree, who see Christ and don't know what to think of him yet, who are not yet professing Jesus, who do not yet understand the weight of their sins, but they are here to learn. They are interested and they want to come and hear the preaching of the word. They want to see the body of Christ in action. Some will be exploring Christianity because they are genuinely interested in it. Perhaps even the spirit is sparking an interest in their lives and stirring up a desire for the things of eternity. Others will be simply here out of, a, out of a curiosity that is less than spiritual. Some people just want to know what it's like to be in a church. Some people just think that the church, because it functions like a family, might be like a good community group for them to be a part of. They're not really interested in Christ. They don't really see the, the weight of their sin. But because of all these people who are loving each other and caring for each other, they want to be a part of that. And so because we are an evangelistic church and we have a desire, we pray weekly that God would bring new people to us, there will always be people among us who do not yet know the Lord. Our hope and aim is that all who join into the assembly will hear the gospel and will see real examples of faithful worship, that they might receive a true testimony of what God's family is like and perhaps be moved to repentance and faith in Jesus. And when that happens, we pray that they will have a desire to make this their church home and to join the membership here. A third category. There are others who are quite familiar with the culture of Christianity and are therefore able to move and to walk alongside believers and to, to a degree live lives that mirror the lives of believers. They usually believe that they are saved. But due to a wrong understanding of the gospel or an unwillingness to really deal with their own personal brokenness and need for Christ, they might look like a Christian and sound like a Christian and consider themselves Christian. But if they have not repented and trusted in Jesus, then they are not yet a son or daughter of the Lord. You know, 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of this category of people when it talks about those who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So there is an semblance of Christianity in their lives. There's, there's like a cultural feel for Christianity in the way that they live. But their heart is not broken before God. There isn't a surrenderedness to the Lord. Timothy says that they will only be able to accomplish this kind of mirroring of Christianity for a while. 
Because those who eventually, or those who do not truly submit themselves to the Lord, eventually are not going to want to continue to hear the truth of the gospel. It will become abrasive to them eventually as they are still in rebellion to the Lord. Their true position eventually will, will rise to the surface. And then there's a fourth and final category that I wanted to address today. And, and that's those who have come alongside the believers of God, not because they're interested in Jesus, not because they see the beauty of the community and they want to be a part of it, but because they see in the church not only a flock of humble sheep, but a potential resource for them to exploit. There are, friends, wolves that prey on the children of the light, workers of iniquity who sow dissension among the people of God who are supposed to be unified. These are opportunists who identify the faith of Christians as a weakness and who thrive on taking advantage of that. By doing these things, they are undermining the very unity that God has secured for his family. Whether they know it or not, these wolves in sheep's clothing are being used as pawns in a spiritual war that has been raging for, for no, uh, in no uncertain terms since that serpent came slithering into the garden in Genesis chapter 3. This was true of Israel too, wasn't it? Weren't the people who were a part of the nation of Israel... Uh, Weren't there people who were a part of the nation of Israel but were not technically Israel? Paul describes this in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, where he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Often in the Old Testament, that kernel of true believers within national Israel was referred to as the remnant of Israel, those who wouldn't bow their knee to the false idols and the fake gods of the world. And so this, is, this isn't anything new, but we have been given new tools to deal with this and to make sense of it. Before we go further into how this applies to the Lord's table, I want to present a, what I would consider a necessary caution. I want us to be very clear that this distinction that Paul is making um, is not a, a, a distinction that is within the true church of Christ. This is about whether you belong to Jesus or whether you don't belong to Jesus. Are you still, like we spoke of last week, in the covenant of works along with Adam, that covenant that has been broken and has, and has consequences and stipulations to it? Are you under the curse of his sin or have you left that covenant and by faith in Jesus Christ, by the blood of the new covenant, have you become a partaker of a greater covenant, a new covenant of grace, one in which all the requirements of the covenant are met in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That is the distinction that we are talking about here. This passage does not describe some sort of class distinction among brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no such thing as a holy elite like the super saints of Christianity, that they do all these things so right, we're all saved, but you know, there's all these kind of halfway, almost barely saved believers down here, but then there's all these really great believers up here, and there's like a class distinction. That should not exist in the church of God. In the church of God, you are in or you're out. And if you are in, if you are a piece of the family of God, then you should be treated as an equal brother and sister in the Lord. You should be loved. You should be given patience and grace your gifting should be applied to the, the health and well-being of, of the church in a whole, not just the gifting of the, what some would call the super-Christians or the elite saints, 
the, the term saints has been in many ways twisted over the centuries to where many people believe that saints refer to high caliber Christians who've done something remarkable and extraordinary. When in reality, you read the New Testament and the word saint is used quite a bit to describe people like you, if you're a believer, to describe those who have been humbled by their weakness and have understood that their only victory is not in their own works, but in the works of Christ. That is a saint. Someone who's trusting only in his work. And so if you're a Christian, you are a saint today. We, we have no desire to create some sort of false economy within the church where some people think that, that they are holier than other Christians. That's not the case here at all because our righteousness, our holiness, can only come from Jesus Christ. So now, how is all of this discussion relevant to the topic at hand, which is the table before us? How does this impact our view of the Lord's Supper? It is very much so relevant to us. This unity that Paul describes is the focus of the Lord's Supper, as beautiful and powerful as it is, it only applies to the church of God. There are necessary distinctions that must be regularly made for the health of the body, whereby those who are confessing Christ are supposed to consider the weight and the sincerity of their calling. And those who are considering Christ are faced with the truth of whether they are in the covenant of grace or merely around it. The Lord's table creates these moments where people have to ask themselves, do I truly belong to Jesus Christ? You might see this, uh, this play out in evangelism sometimes where you want to be a witness to somebody else, but you never really put the question to them. You talk about your faith. You maybe share a Bible verse with some, them sometimes. You, you glorify God when good things happen. And you wonder why that person never makes a decision to fall after Christ. And then you examine your actions and your words and you realize, I have never put that question to them. I have never said, if, you, if your life was to end today, what would happen to you? How confident are you that you belong to Jesus Christ? that you are a member of the eternal family of God because that is an essential question. It is not a question we can just put in our back pocket or put on the shelf for later. We need to deal with that now because not one of us knows how long our life is going to be. Have you given your life to Christ? Won't you trust him today? So the sacraments of the church function as a means of important distinction. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper do this. Baptism uh, does this before or as we enter into the, the fellowship of the saints. Before God regenerated my heart, I was physically alive, but I was dead spiritually. Now that I am in Christ, I am no longer alive simply for me. I am alive for Him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a radical transition. This is a very distinct change in life. And so those who have experienced that know that they aren't independent from God anymore. Now their every day is lived in connected dependence upon their Savior. And baptism declares that in a definitive way. Baptism occurs once. It signifies entrance into the fellowship of the covenant people. And it continues to be a means of grace for us, though it only happened one time, because I can look back at my baptism, and I can remember that I came before God and before many witnesses, and I declared that I was trusting only in the work of Jesus Christ to make me what I am today. 
And so if my faith begins to, to waver, if I have questions that are unanswered and, and I'm starting to struggle with these things, I can look back to that date of my baptism and recognize that God did a good work to bring me to that point. And that the people in my life now know what I am. I'm not hiding from Him. This is not a halfway commitment to the Lord that I can just assume that people don't know about. This is who I am. I am in Christ. I belong to Him. And I must strive in Him and go to Him for the answers that will overcome my doubts and my fears. So baptism is a sacrament of distinction as well. But God has given us a second sacrament that works hand in hand with baptism to encourage those who truly belong to him, and that is the Lord's Supper, friends. It is a periodic celebration of the covenant that Christ has brought us into through his blood. By faith, we enter the family. We've been adopted by him, and because of his grace, we've been given the full rights of a true son or a true daughter. And so Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, describes this. The Apostle Paul writes there, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so as a part of the family, God's table has become our new table. A believer now eats the food that God the Father provides for them. So these people, these distinct people, are called into something new. But by necessity, they also, that means they are called out of and away from what they were formerly a part of. They can't just keep being what they used to be. In John 18, Jesus describes that his kingdom is not of this world. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus, you have to, in a sense, really leave the kingdom of the flesh. You've got to stop living a worldly life. You can't do that on your own strength. Christ makes that possible. But there is a distinct severing of ties with what you used to be, with the kind of sinner you used to, to be. You are now a new creation. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul describes how believers are in the world, but they are no longer of the world that they still live in. So we are like aliens, like pilgrims. That's how Peter describes us in, in his first letter to the churches, that we are here en route to where we belong, but we're not content to just breeze through without impact. We want to make a difference as we travel towards our Savior, as we await for His return. As we live out our days, we trust in Him every moment so that God can use our lives as a beacon of light to a dark place that we're traveling through. But make no mistake about it, friends. If you're a Christian, you're weird. You don't belong here anymore. You're strange. And to some people, you're very, very offensive. Being who you are makes you unacceptable to the vast majority of those who are not like you are. And that's just a part of being in Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 for a moment. I won't put these on the screen, so if you don't turn there, you're missing out. Okay? Matthew chapter 10. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus is commissioning his 12 disciples. This is the first time he's sending them out in pairs to preach and herald the coming of Christ and point to Jesus as the Messiah. He 
warns his people. He says, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. Right? He's not sending them out into friendly waters. He's sending them out as different, as aliens. And so as they go into this world, even as they, as they go into the communities of the Jews who are expecting a Messiah, who are expecting a Savior to come, that people would be hostile towards them. Be as shrewd as serpents, but be as gentle as doves, says Jesus to these first missionaries. And so that message is that you're going to a place where many will not welcome you. You're going to be very different than those you are trying to reach. And so in chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. That's, that's a hard saying for many people to believe. Jesus did not just come to make earth a hug fest where we all just accept each other exactly as we are and we get along. There's more complexity to Christ's mission than that. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household, speaking of his, his physical household, his fleshly household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now this would fit very nicely into the categories of very difficult teachings of Jesus. Okay, you don't see this on a lot of Christian Hallmark cards. This is hard stuff, but it is true. The fellowship of the church is sweet, but it is founded exclusively on the peace that Christ has made between us and God. And so if you don't, on Christ's terms, receive this gift of grace, then you are not in the family of God. Romans 8 again, kind of flipping back and forth a little bit here. Romans 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there is a very real distinction here, friends. We cannot embrace, therefore, this slogan that is so prevalent in the world, this philosophy that you'll hear again and again that we are all of God's children. Everyone is a child of God. The scripture challenges that thought. That sounds like a wonderful philosophy that we're all children of God, but it does great damage to people who are not truly in the family of God. It makes them believe that just by the fact that there is a heart beating in our chest, that I am beloved and I'm special to the Lord and that I'm going to heaven because we're all children of God because surely God would not send his children to judgment. But when we read the scriptures, we understand that God does desire to be a father to a people and that through the Spirit, He brings many out of darkness and into wonderful light. And He does that at great price to Himself. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to come and take on flesh and to suffer and die on our behalves so that we would not be trapped in this cycle of sin 
and disobedience to the Lord forever, but rather through the greatness of Christ's work, we would be washed clean and be able to draw near. The table distinguishes the children of rebellion from the children of God. So the sicknesses that the Corinthians were suffering from were a result of partaking of the table in an unworthy manner. The way that they were doing it was wrong, and so God was admonishing them. He was disciplining them so that the community would move back to orthodoxy, so that it would be, once again, obedient to God's command. But it was also wrong for someone to partake of this distinct fellowship, this fellowship of the table, who is not even trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's not appropriate. These elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus, which are the very food for those who will live for eternity. And so when we have this sacrament, that is why we encourage you, if you're not yet a believer, then you're about to see something special. You're about to see something that has been going on for 2,000 years. It is a holy sacrament. It is a, a means by which God blesses his people in grace, but it is only for those who have trusted in the Lord. So if you're not yet ready to say, I belong to Christ, my life is his, then this isn't something to participate in. This is something to observe. This is something to watch. Think about how these people are coming to receive what they need from the Lord. And, and think about how your sin means that you also need that. But until you have repented before the Lord and trusted him as your savior, this table is a table that's only for those who are in the church. It's not a table for the lost. We pray that that will change in the hearts of those who are not yet believing. But this is a dividing line. This is for the people of the new covenant. There are churches that differ in how they deal with this, the gravity of this truth. Some churches, in order to protect the sanctity and the meaning of the sacrament, resort to what we call a closed table approach. Even going so far as to sometimes making the, the Lord's table a totally different service where only members of the church are allowed to come and, and in that members in good standing so that it's never put before those who would be considered a missional audience, those who may or may not be believing the Lord. Uh, this is not inherently wrong, but that makes, I think, too much emphasis on the distinction of the local church. You know, when we have folks come to church here, some people might be on vacation. They might be here from, uh, for work, and they don't have their local church to go to. And so we don't want them to think that they have to be a member of First Family Church to partake of this wonderful blessing that God has given to them as true believers. If they really have a profession of faith, let them come. Let them take of these elements. Maybe you're looking for a church, and this is not yet your church, but you've, you, you've, you've tried to find a, a time to get to different churches to see what, they, what they're doing and how they're grounded and rooted in the Word. If that's the case and you're not yet settled here, but you have a faith in Jesus Christ that is real, then come and partake of the table. So some churches do, though. They, they make the table a very unique and different service. Others allow the table to be fenced individually. In other words, they leave it up to each person to determine whether they should take the elements or not. And this is often called the open table approach. In that open table approach, there's not a whole lot of shepherding going on there. They just trust that you know the gravity of, of things and that if you're not appropriately ready to take the table's elements, then you won't do that. Now, we take a hybrid approach of sorts. At First Family Church, we fence the table. We, we guard the table theologically. We do that by each time we engage in the sacrament, we teach you about it. We talk about its significance. We don't just rush through this part of the service. 
we think carefully about why God gave it and how we are to engage in it. So we fence the table theologically so you know what it means and you know why it's important. Then the table is fenced by the individual as we appeal to the conscience and we give you a chance to examine your hearts and to, to make sure that you truly are in the Lord and we ask that you pray through a, a time of, of, of asking the Lord to reveal to you any sin that is hidden in your life that you haven't confessed to Him and, and to truly reveal to you whether you need Christ for the first time or whether you are truly in the Lord and a part of His people. And then thirdly, the table is fenced by those under-shepherds that God has called to be responsible for the flock here at First Family Church, 3195 Contra Loma Boulevard in Antioch. Some might be concerned, well, if the elders are fencing the table, if the elders have the right to go to a person in the body and say, you know what, because of what you're struggling with right now, because you're not, you're not turning from your sin, it's probably better for you to not take these elements until you can show that you are truly repentant of them. Some might think, doesn't that make the elder the judge and the jury over a person's salvation? And we would counter and say, absolutely not. It does not make them judge and jury. The word is, however, the standard by which we determine to the best of our earthly ability whether a person's fit to partake of this holy meal. But the word is clear that this is a responsibility of those who have been called to shepherd the flock. We are responsible for and are tasked with the heavy responsibility of caring for this flock. And so as elders, if we know that there is an ongoing sin in your life and we have come to you biblically in the, in the manner and direction of the scripture and, and tried to pray with you about this and tried to help you to overcome this and yet you are obstinately refusing to trust Christ to overcome this sin in your life, then it's our responsibility to keep you safe and to keep your congregation safe by saying that you cannot come to the table and take the elements until those things are dealt with. It's important because, remember, in, the Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians 11, we didn't just read from Paul that only the people who are violating the law were getting sick and dying. It just said many among you are getting sick and dying. There is a corporate impact that sin can have on a people. And so we, as your elders, must look after you well. And we will answer to God for that. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, through 5, the Apostle Paul is preaching to his friend Timothy, who is an elder in the church, and he's admonishing him, preach the word of God. Do what the scripture says. Be ready and willing to admonish and to rebuke and correct if necessary. And the idea there is that, they are, that the elders have a responsibility that they are to play out with love in the lives of their congregations. When Peter, who has denied Christ three times, sees the risen Savior on the shoreline and he jumps off the boat and swims to him and they have breakfast together. And then Jesus, in, in such a great act of compassion, asks Peter if he loves him. Remember, three different times he says, do you love me, Peter? What is his response to Peter? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Then tend to my lambs. He has a responsibility. He now must guard the people of Christ. And that responsibility truly is on all the elders that have called to do this work. So we, we take the fencing of the table seriously here. There are many ways that a true believer will be distinguished from the unbelieving people around them. They will know we are Christians by our love, right? Our love is going to be distinctly different from the love of the world. It's going to be more substantial and more patient and more graceful. It's going to be more sacrificial. We're going to show the world that we are different than them by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, right? 
love, joy, and peace, and kindness, and graciousness, and self-control, these things that come from the Spirit alive in you are going to make you different from the people around you. We're going to show ourselves different as we decrease and Jesus increases. We become less a self-centered person, and when we become a people whose lives are centered around this beautiful Son of God who came and was the perfect man for us. But the Lord's Supper is to be a regular reminder to Christians that they belong to Christ and a testimony to the world that we don't truly belong here anymore. Since God's word makes that distinction, we should take it to heart as we think about this sacrament. So let's pray and then we're going to move into our time of observing the Lord's table. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would help us to be reverent as we consider what your scripture reveals to us about this table Father, I think too many times churches just breeze through the Lord's Supper and there's very little thought of or spoken of about this table. So thank you for letting us dwell on this for the last two weeks and really take it to heart. And I pray, Father, that you would increase our understanding and appreciation for what Jesus Christ did and that you would do it through the taking of these elements in obedience to your scripture. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.